and then mm-hmm. there's other food, other music, other art that is there for people that are wanting to, to, to know more or feel more. And I think maybe that's actually a thing. People mm. are just too afraid to, uh, to feel more. G'day and shlamalohon. My name is Ninos Kanna. And on today's episode 166 of the Assyrian podcast, we speak with a high-profile artist about what it means to be Assyrian. Now, just sit and think about a famous Assyrian. It might take a second, or it might take a couple of minutes to think of one. But once you find that person, think about their attitude toward their identity. Did you have to think far and wide to find someone who you think is a really proud Assyrian, or was it really quick and easy? Of course, famous is subjective, and today I'm going to be subjective. We all have our own musical tastes and niches, but a prominent artist in the sort of music I listen to just happens to be a proud Assyrian. Aril Bricha was born in Iran and migrated to Sweden with his family as a young boy. He grew up in Jönköping and took his musical inclination to the next level releasing music on a famous Detroit techno label and forging himself as a Detroit techno producer without ever having been there. Now, to me, he's famous. But while his surname can't hide his Assyrian identity, after chatting with him, he wouldn't ever hide it either. Adil is a proud Assyrian, and we chat about his really interesting family history, and after I indulged in interviewing him as a musician, we got chatting about what it means to be a Syrian. Adil had an interesting perspective. I mean, the guy has met so many people on his extensive travels. So I thought he came across as bringing really contemporary perspectives about what it means to be a Syrian. If we come out of this conversation more proud of our identity, yet more outward looking, then one can only see this as a great thing. Before we begin, I would just like to take the opportunity to remind you to make sure you subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen. Also, if you know someone who should be a guest on the podcast or even a host in your own country, please reach out to us. You can find more information on our website. This episode is sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Ashanas on 209-968-9519. That's 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theashanapartners.com. That's O-U-S-H-A-N-A partners.com. And now let's talk about all things techno and Assyrian with Aril Bricha. Aril Bricha, welcome to the Assyrian podcast. Merci, Aziza. <laughs> Merci. Basima, Basima. 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 Yeah. I have to represent my Irani crew. <laughs> I was going to say that's it. That show that revealed a lot. Uh, so you're, yes. you're, you're you're Assyrian, obviously, because you can speak Assyrian. Yeah. And uh, but you're from Iran. Exactly. Well, I'm born in Iran. You're yep. born in Iran. Oh, that's great. And were both of your parents from Iran? Uh, father from Iraq, mother uh-huh. from Iran. The wow. never-ending battle continued even after the war. Uh, uh, between Iran and Iraq stopped. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the battle in the home? Uh, not, yeah, well, of course. You know, you have the Arab side, which is my father. So my mom would always, the Sholat Arabayla would. And my father would be, you know, a kinder version. So it's a constant, uh, it's a constant battle uh, between uh, the the Persian sophistication and the Arab <laughs> brutalness. You know? Oh my Shola god! And I grew up hearing that all my life, and I <clears throat> cracked up. A friend of mine 
who's Israeli, he told me like, this is so racist, but in Israel we say, don't, don't do Arab work, Arab work. <laughs> and it basically it refers to just don't do, don't do a shitty job, just do it right, do it from the beginning. And I just died, because literally, as far as I can remember, since I was three years old, my mom would constantly like, Sholet Arabai Lavud. Do you think it's and a real uh, stereotype, that whole Persian sophistication versus, you know, Arab, that, that kind of, it's an old stereotype, an old trope is... I mean, it, it kind of it is, but also uh, <clears throat> from my family's background, they're all kind of like from Tehran, uh, and Tehran is different. I, mean, I can imagine also from uh, even from Iraq. I don't know how sophisticated Baghdad was, and I know it was. I'm just joking, but <laughs> the rest of Iran is pretty peasanty, I'm sure. So it's not like you can compare Tehran sophistication with, you know, the Assyrian tribes from out outside Baghdad. <laughs> Your mother's family were they from Tehran or, or were they from somewhere else in in Hakkari? Because a lot of Assyrians are from Hakkari originally. Hakkari. Yeah, I, I don't know. I actually pulled out some papers that I had. I made some notes uh, as I had like random chats with my mom every now and then. But uh, <clears throat> it's hard to track back because uh, their parents rarely wanted to speak of this. So my parents really never heard the, like, the full story or could tell me the whole story. Yeah. And uh, going back, it's pretty much... Uh, I uh, On my mom's side, <clears throat> they were actually from Russia, from Soviet and wow. uh, my grandmother was there and uh, had uh, well they grew up there they didn't know better they uh, after the you know first world war and the safe they escaped soviet and uh, uh, married my grandmother had two sons both with russian names leova vova and then came the uh, uh, soviet revolution the communist revolution where they either had to stay or leave yeah <clears throat> fortunately my grandfather Ended up in a prison camp in Kazakhstan because somebody uh, just reported him for some bullshit and that gave him 10 years of imprisonment. Wow. And my grandmother, not knowing you know, if he's alive or dead, uh, ended up leaving uh, Soviet. And the first notes I had is like 1938 by boat uh, left to Asvin or Khazvin. It's a city, yeah. I just looked it up. It's on the Caspian, uh, right? Exactly. So they took a boat some, from somewhere, I'm guessing, Kazakhstan or something, yeah. uh, ended up there and eventually moved to Tehran, uh, where because they had kind of Russian names. So this is ongoing. In, in Soviet, you had to change to, to Soviet-sounding names, and coming mm. to Iran, you had to change back to Persian-sounding names. Mm, 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 mm. Um, so 10 years after this, my grandfather who also ended up being married for two, three years to, to a woman in Kazakhstan. <clears throat> he found out that uh, at the consulate, of the Iranian consulate, that my mo uh, grandmother was in Kalkhuz, uh, K-L-K-H-O-Z, I wrote. I have no idea what this is. <clears throat> a collective, this time in Tehran. Uh, she had moved uh, from... Kalkhuz is a, um, it's like a, a Russian term for a collective, like a ah. farm. So there you go. Thank yeah. you. I didn't Google that. So I'm literally just reading off the notes. I found these papers. Uh, and yeah, they, she had moved to Tehran with her two sons. And uh, one day this, you know, uh, stranger, random man uh, knocks on the door and his two sons are opening the door, literally coming, you know, going back to their mom. Like there's some strange man asking for you and it's their father. Wow. And uh, so 10, 12 years later, <clears throat> my mom was born in Tehran. Hence, the, that's where the kind of Iranian, uh, as far as back as I, I, I can tell. I don't know, bef before uh, they went to Soviet, uh, where my grandparents' parents were. I have no idea. Wow. Um, I have to look into that. But yeah, so that's on my mom's side, and wow. they're from Iran. Technically. But your dad, was, your dad was in Iraq, right? Exactly. So how did, so how did he end up in Iran? He escaped. Uh, he was a communist, a member of the communist uh, party, was imprisoned, managed to escape the prison, went, uh, th basically ended up in Europe through mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of travels and, uh, and, and uh, <clears throat> adventures through uh, the deserts. 
uh, started studying, he ended up in Belgrade in Yugoslavia, former mm -hmm. Yugoslavia, where he there eventually also, two, three years later into his studies, was found that his passport, he was there under a false name, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he had to bounce and uh, left Yugoslavia quickly <clears throat> towards Turkey and there uh, went on like a, uh, hitched a ride, basically. There were, he told me there were people driving cars from Germany, Mercedes, mm -hmm. and they dro drove them to Iran via Turkey and they sold them there. So okay. these, they, he told me there's a place like a, a, a street, a, a cafe, whatever, where these drivers, they, they stop there and they pick people up. So you pay a little money and they get, you know, they have company on, on their way. So he hitched a ride to Iran and, you know, as Assyrians, you just end up uh, finding other Assyrians. <laughs> always. And, <laughs> Always. Uh, so he found his, uh, he, 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 he met my mom uh, who weren't having it and uh, interested at all. Um, and he, I think he worked his way into, into her heart, so to speak, through my grandmother. <laughs> I love it. I love <laughs> Just, it. Uh, yeah. So, Real so charm that's, job. That's, he did a good job, but that's, what, what can I say? It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> yeah. But. That's how we ended up in Iran. That's how they met. And then both me and my younger brother were born. I was born in Tehran and he was born in Iraq. Iraq. And how did you... You're, you're, uh, so you live in Berlin right now? Yeah. But you're originally... I mean, not originally, but you, you, you <laughs> exactly. were raised in Sweden. Exactly. Is that right? We, it is right. Um, 1979, my, my brother was born. Mm -hmm. We actually, everything was ready to move to, to the States, to California, where my grandmother had already moved, where my uncle already moved, cousins, everything. Mm. But my younger brother was too young to travel, so we had to wait a minute for him to, to, to be a couple of months old, whatever mm. the restrictions are. And <clears throat> by the time he was old enough and we, they had sold the house, we're having the last dinner on the floor, on, like proper Irani, on, on rugs. <laughs> on rugs. <laughs> uh, on rugs. And as the uh, revolution is kind of escalating, the uh, American embassy hostage-taking uh, incident happened. And, of course, all the Iranian visas to the States were canceled. Wow. So... No U.S., uh, no Californian Aril anymore. And my yeah. dad working at a Swedish company he, and has seen this kind of, you know, revolutions and, and things happening. He, he knew that it's not going to get uh, become any, any, it's not going to get better in any, in any way. So he had like, to no, get we out. Were not, we, yeah, we had to get out. So we weren't, you know, it wasn't a war yet. It wasn't, we weren't refugees. Uh, so my other uncle was in Greece. <clears throat> we went there for two, three months. Uh, and while my father went to Sweden, organized the papers, and then we ended up in like a godforsaken city uh, called Jönköping. Jönköping. You know, <laughs> Jönköping, where yeah. you'll find, you know, a bunch of Assyrians, as Assyrians do, and... That's where we ended up. I grew wow. up in Jönköping, Sweden. And you're, it's, it's funny. So you're, you were in Greece in 1979? Yes. For like two, three months? Yeah. Is it, yeah. What, which months were they? Um, probably summer-ish, I'd say. It, it looks pretty, like I've, I've seen the, I, I just have the 8mm, the, the Super 8 uh, films from yeah. there. Um, it looks like it's, actually no. Actually, no. I think it might be... I wonder if it's the spring of 1980, because now I remember actually okay. seeing on the film. But it's Greece also. They have a lot of protests, I heard, on the streets. I'm trying to think if this was around, you know, 1st of May, the workers. But no, I, I, I think... Because it took him a few months. So the earliest footage I have of us being in Sweden is 1980, around 1st of May. So I... You're probably right there around 79, which I've mentioned uh, earlier. Wow. My, my mother and her family yeah. were in Athens at that very same time, except they were waiting <laughs> to go to Australia. So they had left Iraq <laughs> and landed in Athens, and then they're just they were waiting to go to transit to Australia. And wow. So that make I mean, it, it, to me, when I grew up, it seemed so random. I thought we only went to, to Greece because my uncle was there, but I guess he wasn't the only Iranian, Iraqian or whatever a Syrian in Greece at that time, mm. uh, while all the Greek people moved to Sweden for work. Did your parents <laughs> have on. fond memories of Greece, or were they just really determined to go to to their uh, to Sweden? 
I actually never asked that question, and I would say it's fond memories because every time we watch that little clip of those, you know, that time in Greece, because mm. the culture is so much closer to ours. Yeah. Like, not only did we end up in Sweden, we ended up in Jönköping, which is not even, you know, a city. They went <laughs> from a place like, like Tehran, uh, going to the movies and clubs and bars and 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 restaurants, and this place, Jönköping, it's like 1980. Everything is closed after 6 p.m. Like nobody is outside. It's just grim and socially sad and cold. Uh, and cold. Like it's not. You know, people think it's Siberia or something. It's not that cold, but it's the. It's not the weather that's the worst cold. It's the actual society. The Swedish, yeah. especially in the 80s, is super super cold. There yeah. might be not racist to your face like it is now with the rise of all this around the world where it's been. It's common to speak your mind but definitely there like just not having your family your friends your immediate surroundings like you literally just move to a place because there's a few Assyrians but you have no con especially my mom not having any connection to these Iraqi because they were Iraqi Assyrians then mm. and eventually my mom got my <clears throat> my cousin uh, there was uh, one family left in Iran. So my aunt my Armenian aunt and uh, the three kids ended up uh, moving to Sweden, wow. so we built our, we had our own little family there. But other than that, there was nothing. There was nobody, there was nobody there. So, either, I mean, I'm sure my mom would have loved to stay in Greece in terms of that vibe. She loves <laughs> the Mediterranean vibe. Let's yeah. just call that. And uh, but I've not, I, I've actually never asked if this was. A, I think it's all down to you know, was there any Assyrians there? But it, like you said, with your with your mother. It seems uh, seems like it was a point of transit. Yeah, you just very you know, much hop. so. My yeah. my uh, my my mum and her family have really fond memories of Greece, and everyone I, I know that's a Syrian that that stayed in Greece, they just love it. Mm. Absolutely love it. But it would have been such I a hard experience. I mean, I've I've in my travels. Uh, in my travels, I've been to Finland, and I mean Finland. Parts of Finland still have that real old kind of a Nordic mentality or Nordic culture mm. of, you know, weekends. I couldn't even go out to a cafe on the weekends. Everything was closed and uh, it was winter and the <laughs> daylight hours were so short, you know, like 3 yeah. p.m. it was already dark. And yeah. I, I could imagine coming from the Middle East, that would be really hard. Yeah, this is, I mean, I knew I, I was three years old, three and a half, four years old by by then. So I, I was, I, I got used to it growing you up. You got there. used to it, yeah, you grew up there, yeah. And now as I'm getting older, uh, for every year, it got to the point where, I mean, at least Berlin is one hour uh, more daylight in the winter. Mm. And it's not so much the daylight that, that bothers me. The reason why I moved was, again, the social, like, the as I grew up, I had no... I didn't see racism or cared or like you're a kid. You have no idea. I'm, sure. I'm the only. Uh, I believe the the uh, expression in your uh, part of the world is "wog." <laughs> Wogs yeah. will be yeah. wog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we say that so, in Australia. Exactly. So I have, I have a bunch of Australian friends. So I'm a fam I'm familiar with the lingo. But it wasn't until the you know late '80s, '90s, where Lebanese people and then eventually Yugoslavian people, there was a more influx of, of immigrants coming in. But mm. we were there in 1980, and we're like the only immigrant. I was the only non-Swedish kid in the whole primary school. Like, mm. but as a kid, you don't care or see this as much. As as older as I got, this became more clear to me that no matter how well I speak the language, how well integrated I am to the, in the country, because, you know, Iranians and Assyrians will do their best because we're mm. so well educated, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it still doesn't matter. They'll see your face name on the street. They'll treat you like, like, like dirt anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but it is, it is like, I, and it hasn't gotten better. Like these days, at least back then, they'll keep the, there was no social media to connect idiots with other idiots. So, yes. Very uh, people had racist opinions and they would ke keep it at their dining table at best. And yes, that's yes, it. that's right. But it's a different mentality now. Why, why uh, so, Yunshiping and not, say, Surtatelia, which is where most of the Syrians live? I think because uh, I moved quickly. I've never been comfortable in a small place. I think that's where I got got it from my mom and from my dad that you know they both came and lived and thrived in bigger cities i think that's what 
ultimately was so depressing with the unshipping. But as soon as I turned 18 and finished school, I, I moved to Stockholm. And mm. being in Stockholm, I never encountered, I met one Iraqi guy called Ninos as well. Ninos Khanna is a, he's a singer actually, a, a prince of Assyria, if you look him up. Oh, no. <laughs> this is actually artist name. But he's the only Assyrian from Iraq that spoke Assyrian that I understand. Everybody else is Suryoyo. Yeah. And I don't I I don't I have no clue. I didn't know of Suryoya b before that. So yeah. I think they ended up in Yan Shepping as again simply because there was Assyrians from Iraq that they knew uh, somehow through okay. someone my in my father's case. Yeah. And so to tell you, I, I really don't even know if there's any actual Assyrian Assyrians there. Yeah. I, I've never met one and I was in Stockholm for a good 20 years yeah. uh, and I should have heard about it. So I think it's more of a, it's a Suryoyo kind of click there and uh, the majority of them, at, at least I'm sure there's some, what I would call Assyrians that actually speak Aturaya, Ashuri, the, mm. the, the language I would understand. I call it Eastern dialect. See, there you go. That's what confuses me when people say Eastern dialect and then Western, because to me, Iran, <laughs> where I'm from, is more Eastern yeah. than Iraq. <laughs> While these guys, they're from Syria and Turkey, you know. Mm. Yeah, how is that, actually? I was, I was been meaning to ask how that is Eastern Assyrian. So and, Eastern and dialect yeah. represents uh, the language as it formed around Urmi in Iran, mm -hmm. which was really the linguistic capital of, of, of the Assyrian language. Um, and there was a real renaissance of it in the late 1800s. And then in the west uh, of Assyrian lands, which is around Turabdin, that area was really mm -hmm. where the, the, the Western dialect was uh, kept and formed, particularly in the monasteries there, places like Mardin. I'm opening up the map here to see where all this is about. So. <laughs> no, literally, literally I'm, I'm, I'm really not uh, familiar with, with, with most of these things. Uh, we'll get to that later on. I'm pretty sure about how Assyrian I am, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sound pretty Assyrian to me. Well, that's more, more important to me, like the fact that I can actually speak the language and communicate and, and uh, identify as an Assyrian. To me, the language is, is the most important thing because I actually, I mean, I had classes in school, which I hated as a kid, of course, <laughs> same, Assyrian classes. Same. Yeah. <laughs> now I obviously regret it because mm. I don't, I can't read or write Assyrian. Mm. Although I've been looking online to see if there's something I would want to take up because it would mean a lot to me maybe at least to be able to 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 to, uh, to learn this but at the same time I've, i was really uh not upset but sad that my parents my father speaks obviously uh, arabic mm. i could have learned arabic and farsi and uh, assyrian but assyrian was the language we spoke at home it would have been amazing to speak all three for yep. me yeah because uh, at the end of the day, I mean, to me personally, it's important that I speak Assyrian, but it's it's uh, it's more useless than Swedish. <laughs> As in, like, wh what can I do with this language? It just uh, it just it is just for me to 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 identify or to uh, to be able to say I'm Assyrian. I love dance music and, you know, in my listening, I, I came across your name. I, I um, came across Groove Lacord, which is your most famous uh, production. And I was like, wow, Bricha, that's Assyrian. <laughs> and then I was, had a look and I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, absolutely. But most of our listeners um, probably are wondering what uh, you do or, or what you, uh, what's your passions. And, um, yeah, I was just wondering what got you into electronic music Ooh, yeah growing up in the 80s uh, pop music in general was pretty much electronic the early uh, 
the use of electronic instruments, basically, synthesizers, drum machines. Of course, nothing I understood while I was hearing the music as a kid, but uh, my father was musically interested. My, f my mother was more of a, a listening and drinking to music and dancing, while my father was the, <laughs> he likes to play. He, would, he would wanted to learn how to play the, the violin as a kid, was never allowed by his parents, of course. He, yeah. Uh, saved up money, bought a violin, and his father found out, and it's, you know, the devil's instrument. Yeah. And uh, um, later on, we have early pictures of me in Iran before we moved to Sweden, uh, where he had, you know, old school, this is not a keyboard or synth, it's an organ with, you know, built-in rhythms. Mm. So later on, he, uh, when I turned seven, uh, he, I, I got a, well, I think he bought it for himself, but it was technically a gift for me, <laughs> uh, a keyboard. <laughs> And he slowly taught me how to play or read, read uh, notes. So in combination of being more interested of the technical aspect, like every two, three years, I would start looking into uh, new keyboards and new models as the more I got interested in electronic or music in general. Mm. And then I felt I, I drifted more towards electronic-based music rather than guitar-based music or mm -hmm. um, the other pop music and slowly it just became you know from you go from Depeche Mode you end up with Nitzareb and you end up with Kraftwerk and then you end up with techno electro and, the, and what we now called house music or techno wow. music wow so uh, I, I was gonna ask I mean is there ha have there been any non electronic I mean who would be your most in, uh, influential artists in your production Depeche Mode, hands down, from uh, from the beginning until mm -hmm. the album called Violator, where a guy, Alan Wilder, one of the uh, original members, were, he was the gearhead, the synthhead. And at the same time as he left, and they took on a more uh, rock, guitar-based kind of influences, I completely lost interest. And this was also during the same time as, you know, 80s is over and 90s came with either grunge or that kind of... Uh, guitar music or mm. you have what uh, I think you might have been into the the Eurodance yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was... that stuff and that's when I completely went like well the pop music is over in sense of you know 80s style pop pop music and yeah. I yeah I got more deep deep into uh, like pure whatever you would call techno I started yeah. going to rave parties 91 92 93 and then that whole you know different styles of music which I'd never heard of uh, drum and bass trance hard techno whatever it was all the same to me in the beginning mm. but Depeche Mode it was like the first band the first song I recreated uh, while I was learning how to sequence how to make music it was behind the wheel. It just starts with a kick drum and a bass line. Just learning the fundamentals of how to build a track, basically. They were, and they, they, they're still, at least in the early days of my, um, I still love their music. I would, I, I, that's all I listened to, basically. And it wasn't until Radiohead gave up their guitars, <laughs> more, red, more or less, and got into synths uh, after 2000, that uh, my obsession of the Depe early Depeche Mode was replaced by, by Tom York and, and Radiohead uh, yeah. after Kid A. So yeah. that's the the popular side of my influences. <laughs> Did you have any other influences? I mean, uh, 
had, had to listen to Assyrian music or Arabic music when you were growing up? And did uh, they have any Persian. influences on your sound? I wouldn't say it has any any kind of influence on my sound. I never tried to bridge or make anything, you know. And it's, I mean, I get the idea behind it, but it's it's such a very fine line of, of trying to do something tastefully when you try to merge two so different styles. Mm. Uh, I mean, somehow it is in me, of course, because I grew up listening to Assyrian music and Persian music mostly, mm. uh, not Arabic music, but... Uh, I can't. Maybe the uh, melancholy and uh, you know the, <laughs> that that side of it. But again, I don't speak a lick of Persian. Uh, yet every time I hear the old old uh, songs that my mom would listen to, it just hits me like in my gut. It's uh, I can't get away from the actual connection to this music and the frequencies. But hmm. uh, uh, incorporating it in my music, nah. یادم باشه یادت باشه دروغ نگیم به هم دیگه دوستم داری دوست دارم اینو چشامون به هم میگه شمی توی سقف خونه یادم باشه روشن کنم یادم باشه فقط برات رخت عروسی تر Yeah. Uh, and then on the other hand, all the you know modern Persian music that comes out that sounds like Eurodance from yeah, 90 yeah, something, yeah. it is so bad with this <laughs> uh, vocoder shit. Like yeah. I, I can't deal with it. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. very tacky. It is so. It is. It is. It is. Mm, very good. Uh, I was going to ask about techno. Why mm. techno? And I, I will say that um, perhaps in Europe. Uh, certainly in Europe and in Japan, it's it's very much uh, more part of the mainstream culture. But for a lot of uh, in the United States, it's still very, uh, very ob- obscure mm. techno music uh, or techno electronic as an underground electronic as a genre, despite the, the music coming from America originally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're wondering. Uh, um, You're basically asking where, how that comes. <laughs> like Europe well, yeah, is more. Why, why, yeah, why Europe, and why did you? F- what was it about techno mm. that made you fall in love? I mean, I've asked myself the question of if what if I would have ended up in California? You know, would I have been a, still have picked up techno? Uh, I don't know. You know how much part of the circumstances around you that kind of shapes you and, and uh, introduces you to a certain. Uh, um, in this case, music, but mm. Europe, obviously, with the history of you know uh, electronic music being being born there, not techno. This is different, but mm. electronic music per se, Kraftwerk, Depeche Mode, mm. Nitzreb, like all these, they're European bands. Front two four two from Belgium. I think it's hard to. In my case, it was strictly because these some of those bands crossed over and actually made it into the charts. Like I, I went in Yun Shipping and I bought a 12-inch of Headhunter. It was probably one of my first uh, uh, 12-inches records uh, by by Front 242. So it's Headhunter uh, by Front 242. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I bought that uh, <laughs> during the same time I would buy it, Jack to the Sound of the Underground, whatever, like these cheesy house early mm. uh, stuff that was out there. Max Mix was the series from, from Italy coming. Oh, yeah, and Italo Disco, actually. Oh, yeah. The original Italo Disco, but at least the movement of this, uh, which is... Te- technically actually produced in Germany, <laughs> in München a lot of it. Moroder is of Italian descent, but yes. he, w- he was based in Munich. Yeah. So I think in my case, just literally being in, uh, in- interested in the sound, I was never interested in guitars and songs. I was interested in sounds, electronic sounds. Mm. This is what got, I mean, in Europe, I, I would still say that it, it's not as clear cut that it's Europe was a, a big deal, maybe not in the States. In the States, 
the, uh, I think the reason is because when techno was born there, it was, it was born uh, because it was made by uh, African Americans. And yep. that will never, you know, cross over to the white uh, audience mm -hmm. uh, until it goes to Europe, mm -hmm. uh, becomes a hit in England, mm -hmm. you know, Summer of Love, Acid Music and all this. This technically was all born in the States, made by African Americans, and then it had to cross the pond, so to speak, to come back to the States and become a thing there. But the problem there was, uh, I don't think the club scene was anywhere close to the club scene in Europe. So I think what made it big in Europe was the fact that DJs were playing it in clubs. Yeah. On the other hand, in the States, uh, 80s was, you know, in, with New York then in this case and Chicago, those were the DJs that started out playing uh, records and music in a different kind of way, not mm -hmm. like the ra radio DJs. So There's I think it goes event. hand in hand. There was one event in the United States which probably typifies this, this culture and, and how uh, electronic and, and techno never really made it in the US. And that one event was called Disco Demolition Night, and it was in 1979 oh. in Comiskey Park in Chicago. And basically right, right, people... Right were invited to attend the stadium and bring disco records and burn them in a bonfire. <laughs> yeah. Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! July 12th, 1979. A twinite doubleheader at Comiskey Park. The White Sox versus the Tigers. Between games, 24-year-old Steve Dahl popular disc jockey for Chicago rock station Loop 98 would take the field at the head of his so-called anti-disco army to blow up thousands of disco records. Every day I would play a disco record and drag the needle across it, you know, and scratch it and then blow it up. But I tapped into something. There's a, an undercurrent of hatred for disco. In a few minutes, we're going to attack the world's largest disco demolition. Admission that night was less than a dollar, if you also contributed an album. We have people come, uh, 98 cents, you get in, bring a disco record, boom. Electronic music, they say, still disco was yeah. part of it. I think so, and, and it's, it's the US, everything has to be a fucking spectacle there. They've done the <laughs> same with rap music, they will just have a bunch of CDs that, that they run over with a... With a whatever truck but yeah i i don't know what to say i think the in, in the in the case of uh, of europe it was strictly the it was the clubs because it was you know common you go to discotheques discos and people are actually playing uh italo disco mixed with madonna mixed with uh, it was just everything was out there and i don't think the states had the same kind of uh club culture and yeah. everything in, in Europe started very early on. It was early 80s in Ibiza, in, in Italy, in Germany, uh, also Sweden in a sense mm -hmm. um, that then led to, that's a different story, but the whole <laughs> Max Martin and Sharon uh, uh, Studios that produced all the Britney Spears and that's all right, that. Yeah. But at, initially they, they were rock p musicians because they all had long hair, have long <laughs> hair and look like ro rock dudes. But they got into electronic music as well and somehow uh, bridged the gap be between, between that. Yeah. But again, I, I, I really don't know. I think the, the, the easiest answer is because the irony of it, techno music is considered to be you know, white people music, but it was made by black people in the, in the United States. And it we'll made get to it that great. in a moment. We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> but I, I was going to say, what wanted... what. Uh, drove you to produce music as opposed to DJ? Um, I never saw myself as a DJ. I, I respect DJs because that's a, a whole other mindset. You look for records. You you know you're a you're a collector of sorts and and a curator. You know you find mm -hmm. records. I was more interested in actually making those sounds and and the 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 music and the frequencies that I heard and I couldn't decipher what it was so parallel to friends of mine that got into records uh, buying records I would come go I would go with them uh, to record shops and in that sense it was more of a I made music that I think I liked and then they would play music for me that I that they think uh, it is mm. or I'm trying to make basically what ended up being described as Detroit techno mm. 
And early on, I was just never, I bought records and I would listen to them, but I just listened to them as I would listen to a Depeche Mode album. Like I would just actually listen, listen to them. I don't buy records to, to mix them and, and to play out. Mm. I was interested in, in creating the sound rather than just uh, playing the records out. Um, but I, I've, you know, I played the keyboard since I was a kid, so it was just a natural uh, continuation. If of I can go speak. back to techno and why, why techno, um, I noticed something in your answer now that kind of piqued my interest, and that is uh, frequencies. Mm. You talked about frequencies, and yes, I, I'm, I love electronic music personally. And when I have to explain it to someone, I just tell them. I mean, if I play to them a great song like. Uh, Say, say Groove Lacord, which is your song, or if I was to play um, a, a trance song, you know, with a big searing um, melody, um, mm. I would say that the song has a vibe. It has this, yeah. these vibes, you know, it gives you these goosebumps and it just makes yep. you feel like amazing, like drugs almost. Uh, yeah. And I find that really hard to explain to other people. I get it. I just don't think people are open, uh, <laughs> open not only open-minded, open-eared, if that's even a thing, or uh, emotionally open for music that is not telling them what to feel. I hate electronic music that, you know, screams at you, like, this is house music. Like, mm. I fucking know it is. I can hear it. And it's the same with popular music that is just, it's just made, you know, to consume. I think this music has a different... Uh, I just don't think all people are, you know, you can try your best to con to convince or change people's mind about electronic music. There's always somewhere you can meet, but I can tell they're like, yeah, I get it. You can dance to this, but they don't actually, they don't get it. And they, what's the point? It's like trying to convince somebody that, you know, mm. either political or religious things. I think either you, uh, you get it early on and it catches you somehow and then you go deeper, as in, in your case, you know, or my case. We got curious early on with the commercial side of this yes but it was something there that you know wanted we wanted to hear more and then less of the commercial side other people don't get that or don't want that for whatever reason you know so yeah, yeah. but i mean when i talk about vibe or when i talk about maybe i'm uh, probably a better word is aesthetic like there's mm -hmm. this aesthetic with electronic music that i really admire and and love and it doesn't have to be in electronic music. I mean, electronic music has opened me up to other genres, uh, you know, jazz, even acoustic or ambient mm. or just all sorts uh, of music, except rock. For some reason, yeah. I've never gotten <laughs> rock. I just, I don't, I don't hate it and I don't diss it. I just don't get it. And yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, is that something for you as well, aesthetic? Is that something it's everything it's it's everything i'm i'm very interested in shapes forms uh, architecture texture food and everything like I, i'm the aesthetics of all this some people just eat to to, to because they're hungry mm. other people like to eat something uh, that gives them a, a different kind of experience with textures with you know the visual part of it mm. and that's the only way i can try to 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 explain this like you said you don't get rock music and for mm. some people they will never get electronic music which is mm. fine you can't but it is exactly like you said it's it's the textures uh, it's the vibe of it or it's the feeling that you get listening to it. And mm. uh, I think the only way to differentiate it, I always say it's either pop music and pop music can be any kind of, I'm just referring to pop yeah. uh, as in popular arts. It could be art, it could be music or food that is just there to, uh, to fill a certain purpose. And then mm -hmm. there's other food, other music, other art that is there for people that are, wanting to 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 know more or feel more and i think maybe that's actually a thing people mm. are just too afraid to to uh, to feel more i will get the same feeling out of a depeche mode technically that was you know pop music it was on on the charts there was it was on mtv mm. uh, but listening to this soup and some people will say they can't listen to it because it's so dark and depressing it's the exact opposite for me it's like probably give an HDHD, ADHD kid uh, speed, you know, to calm them down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I'm a pretty grumpy, sad, you know, uh, dark person. But listening to this music actually brings somehow joy to me. Yeah. <laughs> Can't sound so cheesy, but uh, I don't want to hear happy, you know, uh, rednecks, the 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 Euro disco, whatever. Like it yeah. drives me crazy. I, I, and I I don't know. It's just some people. I've given up. Uh, not that I even try to convince people that this is something you should listen to i think i'm happy knowing that this is just <laughs> this sounds so elitist but it's for a, cer a certain people that get get it and the, the yeah. other ones that don't get it they will emotionally never understand it even like you said i understand the purpose of tr in my case maybe i'll say some more modern this gibberish trap music the hip-hop yeah the rap music whatever they call it i don't get it like i can see how it's actually uh, how people can get into it but i i i don't get it i really don't get it mm. so just as a background you mm. i mean you're widely regarded as the, the the biggest detroit producer that's isn't even from detroit <laughs> <laughs> uh well what do i say it's like the biggest compliment ever of course uh Detroit being the with all its uh, different styles of electronic music that came out of there it was something I grew to like uh, parallel to as I was trying to find my sound uh, which was this kind of combination of, of electronic music techno music basically harder music but still with a melodic vibe uh, to it mm. and as I was making music experimenting at home friends of mine would bring home records and then uh, play them to me and tell me that this is basically called Detroit Techno mm. uh, and then to to fast forward to having the chance to put out your music on a Detroit label one of the well most f famous infamous labels uh, was a uh, was a was an honor of course and it it was funny. I think it it took at least five to ten years. Every time you know, if I was booked somewhere to play, everybody would come up, and they would be from Detroit and say that they'd never seen me around there. Was this Derek May? <laughs> uh, Derek May yeah. it was the founder of Transmat. Yes. Yeah, so but but the other ones would be you know other Detroit DJs that that uh, you know assumed as as you said that my mu uh, that I would be from Detroit even yeah. just because my music was released on a label from Detroit, but yeah. that was not the case. producing music and uh, why not European labels? I did try. I actually tried first in Stockholm to mm -hmm. release by Sweden, uh, to release on the labels that were around there, early, mid-90s. Mm -hmm. uh, got rejected. Then I went and sent it to European labels and they ended up rejecting it. And finally it was more of a like, well, you know, fuck it, I'm going to give this a go. <laughs> Uh, wrote down the address to 430 West uh, and Transmet. Uh, I didn't even have any of the records. I think I went to a friend's place and uh, wrote down their addresses, sent them uh, the same tape, same demo tape, cassette tape back then yeah. uh, that I sent to the European labels. I sent to Detroit and literally with, within three days I had a, a fax from both of the labels wanting to sign a bunch of the tracks, wow. which, in the, yeah, I mean... in. Europe, I waited a month, three months, six months to even hear back from the European labels uh, to, to be declined. But this was uh, unreal to have a, a fax with the 430 West logo and Transmat logo <laughs> waiting for you saying they want these tracks. And these are, semin uh, these are seminal labels. I mean, these, these labels yeah. are coming really were formed the Detroit sound. Yeah. I mean, it was literally like, you know, shits and giggles. I'm just going to send it, see what happens. Yeah. Worst thing that can happen is that they actually come back to me, say something and turn it down, but fine. But there was none of that. They actually straight up and within three days, which it took probably for the cassette to to, to, to reach there. Yeah. So it was literally the same day that they got it. I got faxed from both of the and labels. And was, so. was Groove Lacord in that uh, demo? 
It was. It was on the B side. I never understood the potential of this track. It was just another one of my least favorite tracks. I recorded mm. it on the go. It was like the first take. Ended up on the B side of the cassette. And when the labels got back to me saying, uh, you know, we want this track. And ultimately, when Transmat wanted to put it out on Fragile, they wanted it as the A side. I was like, yeah, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> as long as I get to choose the B side, nobody's going to know the A side. Mine was the B side. I got to choose. It was called Way Back, and as you, as I can tell from your reaction, nobody fucking knows it. <laughs> so. So clearly and early on I realized I'm, I'm not a good A&R, I, I can't pick out music. So mm. I'm going to make music, I'm going to let somebody else choose uh, what is good or not, because clearly I can't tell. And after that release, your profile really built up in Europe. And was it a case of people around Europe that you may have sent demos to thinking, why didn't we sign this guy up? Oh yeah, uh, Soma actually called me back, uh, no shame, and he was laughing at it, or Michel, the, the slam guys. And uh, so I was like, oh, now you're calling me. He's like, yeah, well, you know, and I wish I could do the, the, the accent, you know, the, the <laughs> it's amazing, you, you, you can't decipher it even over the phone, like it's, <laughs> but uh, yeah, of course, if, if uh, Transmat puts it out, uh, then we want more of that as well. Like, so do mm -hmm. you, ha you have more laying around? I'm like, no, sorry, dude, it's. Uh, <laughs> you had your chance. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's uh, also why when I set up the whole Art of Vengeance, it was not so much about the violence that my label name and the, like the project name, whatever you want to call it under. And the EP actually wasn't called Groove Lacord. It was called Art of Vengeance EP. Mm -hmm. It was more about the, yeah, well, uh, the art of, of uh, turning something negative in uh, into positive, as mm. in, in this case, it was uh, the same cassette that was completely uh, rejected in Sweden and in Europe for, for a good year, mm. uh, was picked up by Detroit labels, which I could never have imagined. So, mm. yeah, I'm, and I'm a loyal kind of person as well, so it wasn't more, it wasn't like, a, I would have loved to work with Slam and Soma late, later on, it just, uh, but the fact that people come, like when you have something sitting on your desk, you turn it down and then you come back six months later and you actually want the exact same thing. Mm. Uh, that's where I'd not draw the line, but I feel it's, uh, I, I, we can do something, but I'm going to make something different. You know? mm, mm, mm. So And ultimately, that's why I actually never stuck into, you know, I made, that was a period of time that I made this kind of music. And after a success of a record like that i never wanted to redo it again uh, mm. other people which is the most common they would just milk it for a while but mm. I, I can't milk it like as if, in try to yeah. create new records with with a similar style exactly okay exactly. and you never felt like you needed to do that and I mean, Groove Lacord in this sense is such a stripped down, simple track. So whatever I would do would sound like a bad copy of Groove Lacord. And mm. even when I play it or try to play it, I can never play it the same with the same. Again, we get, we get to energies and frequencies. That one take that I recorded playing it live mm. uh, captured the essence of the track. Trying to replay it afterwards just sounds like a bad copy of it. Mm. So if I would go ahead and 
even try to make a new track, but in the same spirit of this, it would just sound like a bad ripoff. And trust me, I've, I've been sent a lot of Groove <laughs> Lacord ripoffs throughout the years. Yeah. And I was actually entertaining the idea of making a little compilation of, of Groove Lacord copy <laughs> tracks. <laughs> so you're, you're, anyway. You're, uh, so your profile raised and surely you had tons of clubs asking you for, for DJ gigs. Yes, they did. That's how it started. Uh, and, and I was But confused. you were never into... You never succumb to that. No, because I'm not a DJ. That would be such a. I know other, you know, colleagues back in the days that would also start as producers. And of course, when you get uh, offered a shitload of money to come and play records for people, they just say yes and do it. But because uh, quite often um, with electronic music, the they they really DJs, but they just produce to to build their DJ profile. Uh, yes and no. There's two. It's exactly like you said, and it's the other way around. And if you're a good DJ, you would never get, well, you would, but uh, the chances of you actually getting gigs abroad would not happen unless you put out music. So mm. good DJs would become uh, less of good producers or at least being helped by other producers to put out music. But in the other uh, instances uh, uh, where... As me, as a producer, I heard a lot of other producers that clearly should have stuck to just making music at home mm. <laughs> or playing live out. Because I heard, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but pretty much people I looked up to, and it's not a lot of people I looked up to, but from Detroit that would come to Europe and DJ, and it was awful. Mm. Like, you would not believe what was happening. Mm. And it's such a disappointment to, to just see, you know, five, ten years of somebody's work uh, that you looked up to being completely ruined by the, the music and bad choices they do as the DJs. Yeah. So it wasn't because of this I turned it down. It was, I simply, I would, my simple answer is I'm not a DJ, so I will not DJ. And then they asked if I could do a, a live set instead. And this was a Together with Transmat, they were doing a North American tour in 99. Basically, Transmat had been dormant for a while, um, and it kind of uh, Groove Lacord and the album I put out there kind of revived the, uh, the label along with other releases as well, other artists. So we, want, we went, I was invited to join this tour, a Transmat tour with other artists and DJs. So Was that in Detroit uh, or was that uh, elsewhere? All over, all over North America and then uh, also Europe. So wow. my first visit there was actually, I believe, it was Detroit actually, and then Chicago, New York, Pittsburgh, you know, Toronto, Montreal. <laughs> Leading up to this, I basically, yeah, I spent six months um, getting a MPC 2000. It's a sequencer slash yeah. sampler to kind of work out how to perform this music that I made in my bedroom, but mm. out on a club. So mm -hmm. that's how it started. That's great. And right now, I mean, do you, you, you've still got a few gigs this year. I do and don't. They keep getting postponed, rescheduled, or cancelled for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I, w I was meant to go to Uzbekistan now, and unfortunately, due to uh, my father's health being back and forth, I'm just going to. I said I can't do this. Uh, mm. I thought it was a simple, well, not simple travel. It's not, uh, never simple to go these places in the world, but mm. it would literally take me 48 hours to, to get there. Berlin, Istanbul, Istanbul, the capital, stay in the capital over the night. Then the next morning, take another flight and then get in a car for three hours. And God. I'm just, I can't do that. For, yeah. for what, what, a two hour set or a four hour set? Yeah. Yeah, for two hours set, oh and I can't do these things anymore. I was never really up for it back then either, and the pandemic and not being able to tour for two years yeah. uh, forced me to actually, because at the end of this, and I told my booking agent as well, like, it's not the gigs. I would take smaller gigs, fun gigs, and uh, as much direct flights as possible over complicated travel and, and you know, 
just to play a gig which at the end of the day it's literally you play one or two hours and mm. people always think like but this is this is fantastic you get this much money or whatever to play an hour or two but yeah but look at my itinerary <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I'm away for 72 hours to play one hour yeah. just to, then take that money and divide it by 72 hours because yeah. technically that's the time I'm, I'm away from home yeah uh, that happened to me once uh you know kunoyuki takahashi in japan yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I met him at a festival and he was performing oh, wow. live and this was in italy in in mm -hmm. sicily and we actually travel together so this was in a small island in italy and so everyone travels together out of in and out of the island and sure. as we're traveling and he's telling me uh i'm telling him i'm from, I'm from australia and he's like oh wow and he told me how he gets home because he lives in Sapporo in northern Japan and, and the oh, flying man. was unbelievable. And he literally was there for a one-hour set. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, at the end of the day, it is a job. For the last yeah. 20, 25 years, it was my, my job. It, my hobby became my job, uh, mm -hmm. even though I didn't plan on doing this. But yeah, you you have to pay rent or mortgages mm. or wh whatever uh, uh, thing you need to pay for. So on the one hand, I'm super grateful and and uh, I appreciate the fact that somebody wants to a spend the money to to get me out somewhere like Australia even uh, mm. uh, to play. But also, it it is a job like everything else. Like you, I've taken it seriously. I've never in twenty twenty five years cancelled a gig or missed flights. I was always on time. I treated it, you know, as a, as as one should. It's a job. People actually go through a lot of stress and uh, uh, work to to put together to to put a, a sh not a show together, but uh, yeah, to organize a yeah. a, an event. Yeah, just sounded so weird. Put a show. <laughs> But to, to to do all this, it's a lot of people involved and people don't see that. And uh, I don't want to be the, the reason why. But at the end of the day, you have one job is to show up at the airport, make mm. the flight and go there and perform. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's that's all you can do. But the, the older I got and the, the more years I was on the road, it just it really took a toll on me. And it's the yeah. travel. I love being in other places and eating amazing food and meeting friends. Mm. But the actual travel, it is the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, I was alone, traveling alone, playing alone. You're having a dinner with 10 Italians in a random city. <laughs> yeah. uh, half of them don't speak a lick of English. And you're sitting there, you know, nodding your head. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, see, it's, see. It's, what they, it's, it's what they call a lost in translation moment. And it was constant. And, and there's only one place I love for that to happen. And it is in J Japan. I, you just mm -hmm. That's the one place. If somebody uh, offers me one gig there, it's the only place in the world. I will sit on a plane for 12 hours mm. and go for that one gig because I love being there. I love it's it too. It's worth it. Japan is awesome. But yeah, I, it's, I've told my girlfriend as well, if she lands a, a job that, you know, for whatever reason, takes us to Japan for six to 12 months, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm You're with there. you. So, <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. Or it's on me to land a job for me to be there six to 12 months, <laughs> but it's a bit more difficult. <laughs> That's great. So, um, Ariel, I have one question for you, and mm. it's a question that we always ask for every guest of the Assyrian podcast. If you have uh, one message for Assyrians out there, what would it be? I mean, I haven't really thought it through. I, I, I can only speak from my side of things where I feel both so connected to mm. this uh, fantastic and sad history of ours uh, and the diaspora that is spread around the world. And the one thing I just personally for me, which I can't connect to, is this extremely... Uh, this focus on the Christianity and the religion of, of ours. Uh, I'm not very well read up on our history like you are and the whole facets of it. All I know is it's over 6,000 years old. Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. But the fact that we keep identifying ourselves, or at least people around me, family, as Christian Americans or Christian you know, Iranians, Christian this, uh, it's part of it, but to me personally, as I'm not a religious person, this really effectively just erases so much of the Assyrian identity that I feel uh, that I want to uh, teach my, you know, if I have kids in the future or other people I meet, it's, it's always, oh yeah, you're the Christians. Yeah, we're Christians, but we've been there for 6,000 years. We're indigenous to this place. It's like saying Native Americans, you know, was mm. the, 
they've, we are indigenous to that land. We had pagan uh, beliefs, religions, whatever you want to call it. And the history is so much more than the, than the religious part of it right now. Mm. And this is, I think, I saw more of it, obviously, after 9-11, where, you know, uh, it took 20 years maybe now for all Assyrians to, to have a beard. <laughs> but I remember back then, my aunts and my cousins, you know, whoever I visit in the States, like, you should, you know, you, you look like Hezbollah, you should shave your beard. I'm like, oh, yeah? And I point up to my aunts, like, she's got a collection of these shamashes around her kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you do, you do not get to point at them, you know? Like, <laughs> they, they look, their beards are way out of control than, than mine, you know? Mm. So this constant uh, urge to have, you know, to differentiate uh, ourselves from Arabs or this and that, like, I don't know. I don't know my history going back. I don't know my grand great-grandfather, grandmother, Arabs or non-Arabs or Persians, like I don't know their their background. All I know is we have a Syrian in common and the mm. language that's been taught. Uh, um, and I just feel it's this. It's the, again focus on the Christianity side of this. Is mm. just we are so proud of our history of conquering. Conquering land means you're killing people, mm. and when it happens to us, it's a tragedy and a genocide. Mm. But this is the sad part of history in general. Like, I just see this actually just uh, continuing on. The hate, you know, this either you will hate Turks, you will boycott this and that because of the history. Uh, we were never part of it. The current population of Turkey was never part of it yeah. or other countries. I'm just taking this as an example. I'm sure people hearing this is going to freak out or uh, you don't. you do not need to agree, but I just don't believe in continuing this line of hate yeah. uh, uh, is never good. I don't see a solution with this kind of mentality. So, yeah, yeah I just wish, I don't know, I just wish I would find more um, more people like you. <laughs> that I mean, you don't need to be into electronic music, but where you can have this conversation because I feel it's very, uh, it's very this or that. You can't, you know, you can't have it both ways. Like you can't go to Turkey and meet Turkish people and for Turkish people or other Israeli people, whoever I meet that I connect with through my music, mm. uh, luckily, but I can connect to the fact that we do have things in common. We eat the same food. We shout the same way. We're angry the same way. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna put this Christianity thing as the thing that different, different uh, makes us different from others. This, I, I really, I, the little things I know about Christianity is that this is not how you should treat your other, your, your, your neighbor, etc. Mm. So but the whole idea this, about identity, it's, it's as, absur it's as absurd as calling instead of calling them germans calling them lutherans mm. it's the same uh, thank you exactly i i would ref prefer being referred to somebody from this part of the world whatever religion i'm i i i believe in or don't believe in shouldn't matter and i find it again my you know my aunt would give me a crucifix uh, for you know this is for your for your travels and i was like that's sweet and i actually do i do like things of of the sort of crucifix or whatever the khamsa from from the middle east and khamsa the hand mm -hmm. yeah. and all these you know for good luck for whatever but and she's and i thought this was meant for my travel for good luck just in general but no she's like they when you come in next time the uh, the uh, immigration officer will see your crucifix and he will you know give you a pass instead of giving you a hard time i'm like that is insane i'm born in iran it says so in my passport uh, passport tehran i will be pulled aside no matter what thing i wear around my neck like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter and is, that would be the biggest joke like if somebody had a grand scheme plan of committing a terror attack so the solution is I shave my beard and put a crucifix on my chest. Mm. That way I can just slide into the country. Nobody's going <laughs> to nobody's gonna notice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Very good. Ariel Bricha, thank you very, very much for taking the time to join us on the Assyrian yeah. Podcast. Atanabit Basim, as easy. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome.